This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with Kelly Scott of Failure. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 211, 211 episodes. We're in season five, and we're actually sort of revisiting season one, Jay, with this episode. We're coming full circle, which is cool. Yeah, we are. One of the very earliest episodes we ever did. Uh, we revisited Failure's Fantastic Planet, a favorite record of ours from the 90s, with special guest Keith Jenkins joined us for that episode. And just so happens that Failure, in the last few years, have gotten back together, started playing shows, and are now in the process of recording a new record. So we thought, what better time than now to have one of the members of Failure join us and to do so on the phone from... The sunny and warm state of California, <laughs> Mr. Kelly Scott. Kelly, thank you for joining us. How are you? Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. Are you you <laughs> have in like hand claps and jeers and? I'll add that all in. There'll be applause. Um, I'm I'm good. I'm good. It's it's funny because I actually found out about you guys from that podcast. Somebody had put it on one of our social media pages. And I checked it out and thought it was really cool. And I think I sent in an email to you. Uh, yeah, you actually you posted on our uh, like yeah. the website. Yeah, Dimitri Dummytree yeah. is the gentleman exactly. who did that. Exactly. And Dimitri yeah. um, is a longtime listener and awesome fellow who has suggested many records for us to check out that we have enjoyed. So that was uh, very cool of him. We got our little army out there. Yeah. Dispensing our information around. Yeah, it was the... kind of weird. I, I, I certainly, uh, I, I just kind of put that up there. I really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the podcast, and I was actually kind of blown away at how insightful you guys were. There was not a whole lot of direct press from us um, ever really talking about, like you know, how we did records and sort of what went on, and you know, you guys sort of broke the mythology of the whole secrecy that we were shrouded in um, <laughs> i was pleasantly surprised i would say 80 percent of what you guys said was completely dead on well let's oh. ignore the things that we got wrong and <laughs> yeah. let's, let's uh, no actually i would i'd uh maybe we'll get to that in during the process of the interview but I, i'd be interested in, in I'm, I'm you know a lot of the information we get is from like wikipedia or Mm-hmm. Our own our own ears listening to records, sort of surmising things. Mm-hmm. So I'm always interested mm-hmm. afterwards. We have gotten emails from people who are in bands who said, Hey, I just heard the interview or, or I heard the review of the record that you did. Here's here's something you probably didn't know, or you know, turns out that right, right. what you said about this was on or off or whatever. So it's always interesting to hear from people that we don't get to talk to at the time. Right. Did but did it's, you it's get not... a lot of feedback from did you get a lot of feedback from that podcast? I'd have to go back uh, and, and look. I don't think we got much in terms of like people correcting us on facts. Um, no. Yeah. No. But we, but we, we definitely. Well, a lot of people probably, we usually fall into the where are they now category. Right. People are off thinking about like, you know, current matters. Well, the all the bands that we, we review end up obviously being from the 90s, they 
end up being a little lacking for information, at least, you know, that you can verify because obviously the <clears throat> internet didn't exist in the form it does now. Always gaps and we try to do our best film, but sometimes it takes yeah. two or three years of like people leaving comments and coming up with us before we can yeah. kind of get that straight. So, so uh, I, speaking of the internet, I actually, I read an interview with you on the 30 miles East web uh, website. Oh yeah. Um, God, that was uh, when we played down at the glass house in Pomona. I did that. Okay. A few months back, back in June. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was a section of it that, that caught my eye and I wanted to ask you about it. It was, I'm paraphrasing here. But you said um, Phil Rudd on Highway to Hell basically taught you how to play drums and that yeah. Rush's All the World's a Stage taught you about what you could do with the drums. So I'm curious as to yep. like what age that was for you that you actually started playing drums. Twelve. I was twelve, 12 years old. I was uh, just going into eighth grade and my parents got me a drum set. Uh, their deal was they bought me a snare drum and they... Uh, they I mean, if you get cool with it, then we'll buy you a drum set. So that was the idea. It was a, a horrible, 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 horrible. Um, but my, my older brother, who was kind of like my musical patron, turned me on to, because uh, I was like a big, big Kiss fan before that, but he turned me on to, he gave me a copy of Highway to Hell, and then about a month and a half later, he gave me a copy of uh, All the World's Stage, uh, and I was off to the races. <laughs> yeah, it, it was incredible. I dropped. Yeah, I dropped all my friends. I dropped girls. I dropped soccer. Like thing that I was in school became drums. And, and so, so, at that point, wanna, what do you want to uh, do? Anything? Uh, I'm I'm losing like maybe every fifth word from Kelly. Is yeah, there we can do. Um, I'm cloaking. I'm cloaking them. <laughs> I'm totally messing with you, man. I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> You're just uh, dropping them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Kelly, are you in a bunker or in some sort of a concrete? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if maybe. Are you, a... <laughs> are you in a fallout shelter, perhaps? That might be interfering with our signal. No, dude, I'm telling you, it's that cloak of secrecy that, that I'm shrouded in. <laughs> the band just permeates. It's like, uh, uh, Keep you keep you from getting through my defenses. I think I think we're just gonna have to muddle through, and then I'll I'll piece it together in post when I uh, okay edit everything. I just wanted to, wanted to make sure before we get in. Right, we're gonna have to set up the set up the Campbell soup can and string phone for you. <laughs> yeah. So once you got the drum kit and you became obsessed with it, did your did your family become more encouraging at that point? Did they want you to pursue music as a professional? Not necessarily as a profession when you're 12, but did they want you to continue to play music um, throughout um, high school? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I think they wanted me to pursue something that was going to keep me out of trouble. You know, I think it was more like that because I, I kind of come from like my older brother and sister were a little bit of they were both kind of troublemakers. Okay. Uh, and I think my parents were really desperately looking for something to keep me occupied and, you know, definitely doing something constructive. I don't think it really dawned on them that I was, like, honestly going to pursue it as, like, you know, a profession until I think like a week before high school ended and all my packs were, my, my bags were packed. 
You know, and I was like, all right. You know, I've been telling you, I'm moving to L.A. all these years while I'm really doing it. Um, so did you did you go but, to L.A. without a band? Um, I actually went to L.A. with, uh, with uh, I had two guys in my band, and then there was another band that had three guys. And they would borrow one of our guys to complete their band when they did gigs, and we would mm -hmm. borrow one of their guys to do gigs with our band. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like two parts of a band moved out here. And that lasted, that lasted for, I don't know, a couple months. And most of them, like, kind of hightailed it back to, back to Florida. So what was your first, like, serious band? What was the name of the band? And what kind of stuff were you doing? Um, it was a band called Liquid Jesus. Okay. Uh, like, late 80s. We put out a couple records. It was sort of, uh, like, during just kind of at the, the tail end of uh like when George James started to kind of break out like late or late eighties, really early nineties. Like we I think our first like big tour we had uh uh Allison Chains and Mookie Blightlock, which would later become Pearl Jam were opening up for us. Wow. Huh. Okay. We were we were kinda of like the kings of LA at the time. It was sort of uh kind of like Led Zeppelin meets Jimi Hendrix. Definitely retro but certainly had like a new twist on it. You know, because we were really young, and there was sort of uh, like a, a Pixies element that we were all into, and you know, it's just a weird mishmash of like current and retro stuff. So that's late 80s. At, at that point, had you sort of figured out your style? Because I'm thinking back to the to the Phil, Re Phil Rudd and the Rush. Those are two very different styles of drummers. And not just in terms of yeah. the way they play, but even their drum kit setup is wildly different. Had you, at that point, sort of figured out the, the style and the kit you were going to be playing with? No. No. I actually... I was never really consistent with my style or even my setup. I, I don't I don't think like I really started to settle into a definitive style until I stopped pursuing drums as a way to be noticed. Hmm. What know? do you mean by that? I mean, it, well, I, you know, in, in looking back, there was definitely a sort of, especially like in, you know, because I was like kind of a you know, weird little small kid and, you know, like most kids in school, they envy certain groups of people, mm -hmm. um, you know, and even, even from the youngest age of like playing, I remember like literally looking at the back of, uh, or the, the center gatefold of the Kiss Alive record and thinking, holy shit, if I do this, <laughs> like, this is what I'm going to get. Like, it was so real. Yeah. That sounds so familiar. Like, wow. Like there is nothing better than this. I will yeah. be one of the most important people in the universe. You know, so I, you know, I don't, I don't pretend that I, you know, necessarily, and it was the 80s also, 
you know, I didn't start playing music because I wanted to be a musician, you know. I started playing music because I wanted girls and money and, you know, I kind of wanted to feel a little bit better than I felt I was, mm-hmm. which is, you know, probably an indication that I didn't necessarily have the greatest self-esteem in the world. But there was there was definitely a point where, I don't know, maybe I started to feel a little bit better about myself and the way I played you know, was less of a, like, fighting for attention and more of, you know, just trying to, you know, I kind of flipped it around. Instead of wanting to be the front man, I wanted to be, like, the most important man in the back. Yeah. You know? When did that um, happen? I'd say, like, probably somewhere, like, somewhere within, towards towards the end of that band, Liquid Jesus, because it, it was... The whole band was kind of a weird thing. There were two drummers in the band. There was me and this guy, John Molo, who was Bruce Hornsby's drummer, mm. um, huh. who had been playing. He'd been playing longer than I'd been alive, so he had this wealth of experience. So I was always competing against this guy to, like, get the better gig. Like, he could just roll in when he wanted and go, I want to play this great gig. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm going to record everything on this record. So it was always, like, this battle to secure, like, half of the record from him. To, you know this really sort of competitive thing and that's kind of when it dawned on me that I was approaching what I was doing what I was doing wasn't sustainable you know if it was something I wanted to continue to do as a career um, it, it had to turn into something that I put more into than necessarily got out of you know the yeah. riches were like pouring hard work into it and becoming really good at it at, at what point did you decide that liquid Jesus was it the band breaking up, or did you leave that band at some point? I, I, I left the band. I left the band. There was there was just one one too many of those types of situations, and I just kind of was like, yeah, you know what? I think it's time that I, I go out and find my own thing. So I, I would I would say your style. I've I've always thought of it as um, you're incredibly patient for a drummer um, playing drums myself. I know that can be a challenging thing and it takes a lot of time to get to that point where you feel like you don't have to sometimes the empty space you leave is as important as that the space that sure, you fill sure. <laughs> and sure. i think that's kind of what you're you're describing is you know you maturing to that point and starting to realize that perhaps um you know was there a drummer around that time that you know you you saw or listened to that that helped trigger that in your mind or identify that you, um, you know, identified with well certainly certainly the the before mentioned drummer john molo um mm-hmm. who is i think probably that was definitely the first like real professional drummer that i had ever come in contact with mm-hmm. you know someone who had made a living at doing it and you know i really believe that he definitely had something to tell and show me you know, but at the same time, like it was this weird where I, I I loved being around him and learned so much stuff, but I also wanted him to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, not literally. I mean, yeah, yeah. Super, super sweet guy. Um, but that, I think that was probably my last like really, really big influence. And then, you know, as I went out on my own, like more musicians became like really big influences to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I had I swallowed like swallowed so much uh, 
of myself during that experience. Like from that point on, I found it really easy to listen to musicians, and I could I would sort of get off on like being able to do whatever they wanted me to do, you know. Okay, so like uh, more like they had a vision and would give direction on what kind of drum part they were looking for, that sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I found that like really demanding. And, huh. you know, I did that for a couple of years where I just kind of soaked up being around the people I was working with and sort of being uh, being their empty palette, you know. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of musicians who would love to find a drummer who, like, keeps his mouth shut and will, like, work really hard to do your vision. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so there, there, I mean, there were, there were a lot of stages in, by the time I got to failure, like I, I had sort of taken responsibility for my instrument and, you know, had, had put more, you know, flamboyant things behind me. And I was ready, I was ready to be like who I was going to be. And it exactly coincided with meeting the guys in failure. Uh, what you filled know, the space? where between... like my style going forward, mm-hmm. um, I think, was like cemented. So what uh, what filled the space between Liquid Jesus and Failure? What were you uh, what were you doing musically? Well, after you mean the, the the space after we broke up or before I met those guys? Before you met those guys, what uh, um, what other well, bands after, were you in or projects? After the Liquid Jesus thing, I had a band called Dumpster in L.A. for a while. Um, that was like really kind of right on the edge of Prague. Uh, then oh my god, like right before I met the guys in Failure. I was playing with uh, uh, Pete and Franz from Wool. Um, I was playing with the Suicidal Infectious Groove guys. I had about 10 bands of my own. It was just like really, really, really busy. I was in all of these bands that I didn't want to be in. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was looking for the band. I, I, I did want to be in them, but they, they weren't the right. Like, I hadn't found the thing that I clicked with yet. Yeah. Um, so it was very serendipitous. Like one day I literally came home and there were all these messages, literally like five messages on my machine from five different people telling me about this band failure looking for a drummer. You know, how I had never heard of them uh, was really weird in the first place. But it was like Tom Morello left me a message. Their manager left me a message. Uh, one of the guys I knew from the record company had left me a message. It was completely bizarre. So did you did do they do they audition you at that point or do you just kind of go in and and start learning about the band and what they sound like what's the process of actually joining the band? Well, that that's kind of a funny story in itself. Um, like after all these messages, I spoke to their A and R guy, and I went to uh, uh, Slash Records, was probably like maybe six blocks from my house. So I rode my bike down there and I grabbed their, uh, they had a three song, uh, uh, like the first three songs on Magnified, mm-hmm. um, on cassette the guy gave to me. And I went home and like kind of put it on my mantle and I talked to Ken maybe a day later and set up a, a, a you know, in quotations audition with him, um, which I, you know, going back to all of this stuff I was doing by the end of the week audition time. I had completely forgotten about it. And he called me up like, you know, maybe an hour after I was supposed to be there and hadn't shown up. Uh, pretty upset. 
Um, so that was that was my first audition. Was not <laughs> showing up. <laughs> well, <laughs> and he he so it goes from there. Like he called me and was like, you know, not too happy to say the least. And I, you know, profusely apologized because I, you know, I totally dropped the ball and just spaced. You know, I had way too much stuff going on. And uh, I was like, well, let's, you know, let's do it again and, you know, I'll pay for it or, you know, whatever I can do to make it right. He was like, well, I'm getting ready to leave town tomorrow to go see my then girlfriend in Wales. And I was like, well, why don't I just do it with the bass player? And he was like, you can do that. And I was like, well, yeah, of course, if your bass player and drummer don't play well together, then, you know, your band's probably not going to be very good. Yeah. Um, so I wound up getting together... I wound up getting off the phone and then listening. I, I still hadn't even listened to the cassette. Uh, and I listened to the cassette and my heart literally sank. Like every, everything that was going to happen from that point on was like so apparent just by listening to the first three songs on Magnified. Yeah. You know, I, I knew I had like found the band I was looking for. And at the same time, I was really afraid that I had blown it mm. by not showing up to that first audition. So did they have the entire album written at that point? Or were you just hearing like the first couple of demos that they had done? No, no. The album was written. It was recorded. It was actually, I'm pretty sure, being mixed at that point. Okay. So they weren't having uh, you come in to do drum parts. They were having you to come in and, and be the drummer to play those parts. Exactly. Okay. Um, which, which is, so, you know, long story short, I go, you know, show up at the, uh, uh this place called Mates in the Valley, and I play through, you know, those three songs. It was Moth, Let It Drip, and, uh, Frogs. Uh, we played through them once. Greg looked at me with a big smile and was like, you're the guy. And we called Greg, or Ken in Wales, and Greg informed him that I was the guy and, I don't know, probably like a month later, we went on tour with Tool. Wow. So it was it, it, it was totally bizarre. Like, it was completely bizarre. Somebody should have written a movie about it. It <laughs> probably would have sold more tickets than we did. So you didn't play on Magnified at all? No, I didn't play on Magnified. What they, they, they had this kid, uh, what was his name, uh, Gardaki was his last name. And they were rehearsing with him, and I think they did one or two gigs with him. And he went in and completely choked. Mm. Uh, and they, you know, they're, they're, when things aren't going good, like, they, they have really, really strong opinions. So it's really easily for the wrong person to, like, turn for the worse, you yeah. know, to sort of crush under their strong personalities. Mm. Um, so I can only imagine that things weren't going good for this kid, and they were not happy about it, and he got even more freaked out, and, you know, eventually he just, they kind of had to get rid of him, and they wound up doing it with Greg, wound up playing, like, the hand parts, like hi-hat, recording it to the end, snare drum, recording it to the end, palms, recording it to the end, sometimes triggering the kick drum, and then the engineer they had used to be in marching band, so he did a lot of the films. Wow. And that's I how was... they pieced all of that record together, the drum parts. 
that I I was before wondering about digital. that. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering about that because it sounds very, at least sounds sampled. Like it sounds like there's triggers there, but yeah, I, it's very mechanical. Yeah, yeah. And I had read a couple places that said that you came in and did half the record. So this is a good no, opportunity to no. clear that up that you don't play on that record at all. Yeah, no. I I joined the band. We went out on tour, and the finished record uh, came out like probably uh, I don't know. I'd say like a month into that first tour mm-hmm. um but i did manage to secure a thank you in the liner notes <laughs> well that's good <laughs> for yeah. not showing up to the yeah. audition uh, uh, yeah, yeah i know right <laughs> so what was it like going in and working with you know two guys that obviously have a vision and are very demanding and the sort of unorthodox way that this album was recorded How, what was um what were their expectations from you in terms of uh, um, what you could do with drums? You know, I think they just wanted me to be able to play it well. Okay. You know, I, I don't think they entirely realized that the way they recorded everything was going to make it extremely difficult for a drummer to be able to reproduce a lot of it live. Mm-hmm. Um, because even the record, writing of the record, like they did it all on drum machines. Like if you've ever listened to... Uh, uh, I can't remember if it's Golden or Essentials comes with a CD of all the original demos from Magnified. Mm-hmm. Like, they they pretty much recorded the whole record on a four-track and then went and tried to duplicate it in a studio. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are parts of the original demos that I think are even better than the record. You can hear the vision. Like there isn't too much that changed from from their original in their bedroom four track demos um, to what the record eventually turned out to be. So, uh, was there any any pushback when you actually had to perform that as a human, <laughs> you know, in a live um, setting? Was there any pushback you know, of like it's not the right way? I I don't think so. I think it was also the first time that they had really worked with a drummer with my kind of work ethic. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it, I mean, the way I work, like, I, I don't like not being able to do something, you know, and I, like, really, really work hard and get really, really frustrated, and I think they, they more or less kind of stayed out of it, you know, because they knew that they weren't going to be any harder on me than I already was. You know, for the most part, like, we gelled really well. Um, you know, I think the first couple like weeks or so, you know, there were a few bumps and bruises, just like, you know, sort of adapting to a completely new, like the idiosyncrasies that are involved in like recording that record, you know, and then like another couple of weeks of sort of like, you know, throwing things away and adding, like sort of making it, you know, the way I would have played it. 
mm-hmm. without losing the essence of what they did, which was really cool. You know, I, I would think learning that stuff and playing it really well would be, you know, any drummer's dream. You know, it's very, in a, a childish way, sophisticated. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they had any idea how sophisticated some of it was. <laughs> that happens when you do every every drum separately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't, you know, you create patterns and things that you wouldn't normally do if you were doing it all together. In terms of the third record, Fantastic Planet, is that how it was demoed as well? Did did Ken and Greg kind of do it on their own, or, or were you involved in the process of writing those songs um, at the start? I was involved in that also. Yeah, okay. that was kind of like when we got back from the tour, it was time to do a record. So we we more or less got our entire recording budget because you know we had decided that we wanted to do the record. Um, ourselves, we felt that especially the Albini record was not the failure, you know, that it was intended to be. You know, it was always kind of like having someone else in the mix, sort of, there was always something missing by the end of the record. Hmm. You know, because you're having to explain your vision to somebody else, and then of course, you know, they have their own opinions, and, you know, Fantastic Planet was more or less like getting all of that out of the way and kind of being unhinged and doing it all alone with no input, not having to explain yourself to anyone else. So did okay. you, uh, did you um, get the vision right away? As soon as you, you know, when you heard that those first three songs, did you get right away what, what this band was trying to be and going to be, or did it take a little time well, yourself to figure it out? No, I think, you know, having at that point played in so many bands, so many like really good bands. As soon as I heard it, it connected with me in a way like, you know, I imagine it connects with, you know, everyone that believes they've found like the love of their life. Mm. You know, it was definitely love at first listen. It was completely, it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard, which is what I'd always been looking for. Mm-hmm. And once I met the guys and started working with them, like they're, just their work ethic and their seriousness. Like, they were really, really serious about the music and the minutia of the music and, you know, all of the normal being in a rock band kind of things, like, were sort of thrown by the wayside. Like, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a band to have fun. It was a band to be really serious about. And what a contrast from where you started, right? <laughs> yeah, completely, completely. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at that point, I mean, I'd been doing it for long enough that I, you know, it's like, well, if I'm not going to be successful at this, I'd better be fucking good at it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, so you said that, you know, you sort of work through, started working on Fantastic Planet as a band. Now, it's a little unclear to me how the bass duties are work in the band. It, it seemed as though, at least <laughs> recording-wise, they sort of swap back and forth. How does yeah. that work yeah. as you for you as a drummer where you know you got to be lockstep with the bass player and you guys got to be on the same page how, how does that work out um you know i've never really thought of it as like i, I don't really feel like i'm playing with two different bass players like it always feels the same hmm. um ken definitely plays the bass differently than greg does um greg tends to use a lot more notes and Ken is, like, way more plotting and simple. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's kind of how the duties are on both bass and guitar. 
Um, Greg tends to play like really complex voicings on both instruments. Um, and a lot of times when that happens, not a good idea for Ken to be singing and playing that instrument that's more busy. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes that dictates who's going to play the bass or the guitar. But it's kind of, you know, I mean, that's a good question. And it's, I don't think any of us can really answer. It's just something that kind of happens, you know. One day, one of them will pick up the bass. The other day, the other one will pick up the bass. Like, it, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> you know, and we seem to function and write seamlessly, no matter, you know, who's playing what instrument. Um, like, even, like, The Nurse Who Loved Me, like, that whole thing was recorded with just drums and piano. Huh. So, I mean, there's definitely a vibe and a connection that we have that kind of supersedes, like, the sort of thoughtful, you know, what's going to happen if I pick up this instrument, or, you know, it just kind of happens. It's really, really bizarre. I've never actually even thought about it until now. Um, so that... Because, I mean, just this, just this week alone, you know, that scenario has played out, like, you know, probably a dozen times. Very cool. Huh. So, so you truly don't know if you take the record you're working on now and Fantastic Planet as examples, you really mm-hmm. don't know what these songs are going to be until you're done recording them, right? Because you're still writing, you know, yeah. crucial parts of the songs as you're recording. We we have no idea. Usually, when when we start a record and we're doing this record, pretty much like we did Fantastic Planet. I mean, there, there's there's like probably a new 10-15% of things that are happening that didn't happen, happen on Fantastic Planet but from just our experience um, after breaking up until now. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the game plan is pretty much the same. Where, you know, with Fantastic Planet was kind of unique in that, you know, Kenton had never done, like, a, a full record like that before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he has this thing in his personality, maybe it's because he, you know, was a film major. Um, like, he's really, really able to get into just such fine detail. Like, his brain works in a really mysterious way when it comes to that. Like, he can tweak out on really, really, like, minutia for hours and hours and hours, whereas I'm like, that would drive me completely insane. Mm-hmm. And when when we did that record, like we kind of moved the studio that we had bought, which back then was ADAT, mm-hmm. um, into a rehearsal room. And there were probably, we had written two songs out on the road with Tool, roughly, um, Sergeant Politeness and Daylight was still kind of a jam. And we sort of demoed some things, not quite finished, uh, like maybe two or three other songs. So by the time we moved, out of the rehearsal studio and into the house, we had like four or five songs that we could start with that, you know, still needed to be worked on and fine-tuned. And we had also made hours and hours of just jam tapes where we would just show up the rehearsal room and jam for a couple hours and record it, you know? So within any one of those jam tapes would be like, you know, 10, 15, you know, however many ideas. You know, we'd usually just kind of, like, find something cool and then move to another thing about 16 bars later or maybe stay on this thing for, like, three minutes and go to something else for, you know, it was really kind of stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that same thing on this new record also. We we took out a month when we were getting ready for the El Rey show last year because we were getting together every day, like, basically putting all of our gear together and 
relearning songs and figuring out set design and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we, for like a month, we showed up four times a week and made those jam tapes. The odd thing about that is this time around, like we really haven't gotten to the jam tapes. Like as soon as we finish a song and we decide we're going to move on to something else, somebody already kind of has a riff idea. Wow. Or like, you know, last week, have you seen that pledge music thing that we started last week? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, that, that thing, the, the recorded movie, is mm-hmm. like, we're like, okay, well, we're just going to record ourselves jamming. And we wound up coming up with five new ideas just in that jam while filming for that pledge thing. Wow. You know, so this week's song is like three of those ideas. And, you know, it's been really, really kind of bizarre and how, like, the new material is just sort of coming to us. And uh, Fantastic Planet was a lot the same way. There were some things like that, but there were, like, Space Song came from those jam tapes, and, like, Heliotropic came from those jam tapes that we had created. written like one or two songs sort of at his parents house while we were doing the record but yeah we we really don't know we literally start a song um which is usually the first day is coming up with an arrangement and the drum parts and you know fantastic planet days like the first day i had to write and arrange and record a drum part and then they would spend like a week or a week and a half doing overdubs and vocals wow and then we would move on to the next song. So that whole record went like that. The good thing about now is we kind of do the same thing, but I don't have to settle on a drum part. Um, like I can roughly map it out and come up with a couple cool things and sort of bring it home and listen to it and work it out. So when I come in the next day, like I get to put it down and I know these are the right parts and, you know, I don't spend the next 20 years wishing I would have changed, you know, this hi-hat beat. <laughs> or, you know, wow, what would have happened if I had done that instead? Now, is that because uh, which, of the Which, there's not a lot budgets? of that. Well, just because of the, the fashion that I was forced to record all the drum parts, and definitely experience, you know, I was doing all of Linda Perry's records for like six years, which is pretty demanding, like in-studio like, here's the song, now play your drum part that's going on this record now. Yeah. You know, so I had a lot of years of 
sort of being able to do that. But it's just, you know, it's nice to be able to, like, work and get into it and be kind of free and creative and then, like, take a step back and breathe and yeah. sort of look at what you did and, you know, yeah, you know, this part would sound better without any fills or this part, you know, maybe it needs a little, you know what I mean, as a yeah. one drummer to another. Yeah. Um, on Fantastic Planet, I didn't get that luxury. Sure. So, you know, so like, like me trying to write and record with two guys screaming in my ears about what <laughs> they think. And, you know, it was pretty exhausting. You know, they were, they were like 10, 12 hour days um, of writing and arranging and exhausting every idea possible. And that was the hardest part, remembering all the arrangement changes. Because we would rearrange stuff, you know, sometimes 30 times in a day. Mm. And you have to keep track of all of it. So listening to the uh, process that you guys took for the record, it, I think one of the things we debated on the, uh, the episode we did on it was w whether or not this was a concept record. So now yes. hearing the process from you, whether or not it is a concept record, I, I would seem to think the answer would be no. No, no. The, the, the concept, I mean, I'm still not sure what the concept is. Yeah. But whatever it was, was placed on the album afterwards. Okay. You know, I still have yet to have anyone explain to me, like, what the concept is. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there are definitely, like, some threads that go through the record. Like, we were watching mm -hmm. a lot of movies. You know, that's where the Solaris and, the like, the Tarkovsky films come from. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, you know, there was The Spy Who Loved Me, which we watched a lot of. And we, we had this friend who owned a Laserdisc shop that would bring us up, like you know, a dozen laser discs every single week to kind of keep us company while we recorded, you know, and all of us love movies and we're like really into like dialogue and cinematography. We're definitely movie nerds. Uh -huh. And that, that seeped in there for sure. Um, we're all definitely fans of space, you know, NASA and public access and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, documentaries and discovery channel and you know so i'm sure some of that seeped in in another space song and solaris is spacey and i guess you know we're a space rock band uh which i don't i we weren't called that then but i guess that's what we're called now <laughs> i think that got Maybe retroactively why. applied why i yeah. think people yeah. apply that to like spiritualized as being a, a space rock band or yeah or, but I, I kind of I, I understood the concept up label at the time because it seemed like there was this, like you said, this Solaris 2001 story, love story in space sort of being told. With, and then it had these interludes. And the only albums that had interludes were like rap albums in the 90s. There weren't any rock records yeah, that had yeah. interludes. So it seemed like there was this yeah. overarching concept and these connections being made to the beginning and the ends and the middle of the record. So that's probably where all of our confusion yeah. came from. And it, it, I mean, it, it totally wasn't. And I, I think a lot of that probably also comes from, you know, we didn't do a lot of press. So you like never really heard it from the horse's mouth, mm. you know? So uh, uh, there's definitely a mythology that was created that sort of ran away with, uh, you know, the narrative for our story. So while you're uh, on that su subject, before I, I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for mystique around bands. If You know, if you're uh -huh. 
If you're an old Kiss fan, you can probably relate to that. I mean, part of the, what made oh, that band so sure. fascinating to kid was the Mystique. So now sure. you're having another go at it with a band that, you know, had a lot of Mystique around it on purpose or not. And now mm-hmm. with the internet and you're doing pledge music, can you maintain that? Is that even real anymore? Can, can bands even do um, that? Or is it, is it all reality TV show know, at this point? I, I think to a certain level um, for us, I mean, I can't speak for anyone else. You know, I mean, if you're that kind of person, then you can, if you're not, then you have to like pretend Mm-hmm. to not be and sort of orchestrate and you know i think that destroys mystique you know mm-hmm. i think you just naturally have to be not drawn to tell your story to people mm-hmm. you know which we don't we we definitely don't get a whole lot of like ken and greg aren't really big you know facebook or twitter guys mm-hmm. um i certainly am more than they are but i i you know i think we can maintain it um, just because, you know, we're not really the kind of band that's like screaming out for anyone's attention. Mm-hmm. You know, what drives us and, and makes what we do important is decided by us. You know, it's our collective intelligence is what we're sort of, uh, what motivates us. In between f- failure, Fantastic Planet and, and the new record, you played with another a, a number of bands you played with um blinker the star and uh-huh, uh-huh. Veruca assault and yeah. enemy just to name a few enemy um yeah in terms of the i guess you'd say the myth making did when you were playing with those artists like when you're playing with Veruca assault does mm-hmm. failure come up as other anything more than i saw you play with failure and i want you to play with Veruca assault or is it merely this is a job and that doesn't really come up. Like it seemed to us like failure was this thing that happened and then disappeared. And then we just, there, you know, the internet <laughs> exploded after that. So we had to sort of yeah. fill in the pieces, but I'm curious if other musicians were also curious in the same way that a lot of people now are about what happened and, and the album and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, for sure. It definitely, you know, even even from the bands were all like very aware, you know, that I was in failure and they were all like, you know, especially from musicians. I think a lot of musicians have have always like really liked the band, you know, like even if they didn't necessarily like our music, you know, I think they liked the band. They sort of respected, you mm-hmm. know, the integrity of what it, you know, seemed like we were trying to do. You know, which is, I mean, all we were trying to do was do something better than any one of us individually. You know, we just really wanted to make great records. Um, right. You know, and Fantastic Planet's a perfect example. Like, that was our, you know, the ability for us to make great records at that point in time was slipping away because we just had so much crazy, bad business stuff going on. You know, we managed to secure money, get a studio, and make the record that we always wanted to make. You know, that was the main motivating factor of that record. Like, no one saw it, no one heard it. We literally wrote it, recorded it six months later, turned it in with a video, and, you know, that was it. Um, but they're, they're definitely, like, everyone I've played with has definitely been aware of failure and always, always had been supportive and, um, like, really respectful. Like, I, I, never, I never sort of had to earn my position in any of those bands afterwards the way I did when I first joined Failure. Um, and you know, playing music is never just a job. Like even, 
even if on the outside it seems like, you know, you know, I'm playing some meaningless pop song for someone who's giving me money, you know, to me personally, like I never go into anything without wanting it to be the best thing I've ever done, you know, so I give the same amount of, you know, heart and work, I, I think, to anything, you know. Uh, I mean, it's a sign of respect. It's like, you know, if they're going to waste my time and I'm going to waste their time, then I'm going to do a great job. Sure. It's your legacy as well. I mean, long after you're and gone, those music. recordings I mean, will no exist. Matter, you know, no matter who you play with, it's always me playing. Yeah. Right. You know, so it's always fulfilling. So was that Blinker the Star record the first post-failure album? And I guess in conjunction with that, can you talk through, I guess, the end of that phase of failure? You know, it was... Uh, the Blinker was the first thing, and the, the odd thing was that we, Ken had produced and recorded one of their previous records, um, and Greg and I both appeared in different spots on the record. Mm -hmm. So we were really close with uh, with Jordan and, uh, uh, what was the other guy's name? I can't remember them now. Um, Colin was the drummer, um, and Pedram, or... Uh, that was the bass player's name, the original bass player. So we were good friends with them. When Failure broke up, Jordan had just moved to town here. Um, so that was like a really, he and I started hanging out. And, you know, he wanted to do a new record and didn't have a band anymore. So I just kind of glummed onto him, you know, and immediately like started with, it's like you break up with your girlfriend and the next day you're seeing around town like dating somebody else. Yeah. You know, it was that, that was kind of my operating style for a while like i when failure broke up i wasn't fully able to reconcile the pain and loss that i was going through you know it took a lot of years and a lot of sort of self-destructive behavior on my part um to sort of like eventually come to terms with you know the love of my life is gone so why did it end what's your what's your version of um you know, it, it was a combination of, you know, the the music business problems. You know, we were getting all these great tours and doing tours on our own, and people loved it. And then we find out that, like, you know, all these people that saw us work really hard to play a show couldn't go out and buy a record. And, of course, there was no Internet. If you didn't have records in stores, you weren't selling records. Yeah. You know, and you have a song on radio, and they see that you're not selling records, and... You know, the record company is giving up because the radio is questioning whether they can keep you on the radio. And, you know, it's just an ugly, vicious cycle of sort of how bad the music business can be. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like working really, really, really hard to, you know, reach this goal. And, you know, no matter what you do, it's sort of getting taken away from you by things that are completely out of your power. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Ken and Greg's relationship was definitely breaking down. Partly because of that, and partly because, you know, at the time, Greg was using a lot of, uh, you know, outside substances to medicate, like, you know, his sort of, like, grief and anger that things just weren't, you know, working out. And, you know, I think each of us sort of had our own way of dealing with everything not going right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the main thing, the thing that ended failure was Ken and Greg's relationship breaking down. Mm -hmm. Like they just, they couldn't, they couldn't function in the same room together anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it was just a shame. And literally Ken, I think we had, we had just, 
played, uh, ooh, we played the main stage and headlining the second stage on Lollapalooza for like, you know, a month and a half. We had just gotten home, and I think the next day, Ken called me and was like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And we just literally, that was the end. The end was one phone call. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew it was coming. I don't, I don't think Greg was sort of, you know, off in his own little world. I don't think he saw it coming. And from what I understand, he was pretty angry when Ken called him and told him. But yeah, that was kind of, kind of definitely it. Did you um, stay in contact with I, him after that? The same way you stay in contact with like an old girlfriend that you're like still in love with, you know, as little as possible. Okay. You know, but just but just enough to you know relive like the better parts of that relationship. You know, I, if, especially like, you know, when Greg started doing auto lock, like I'd go to an auto lock show every now and again, like, you know, we never really hung out at see or talked to Ken from time to time. Like there were definitely years that would go by where we wouldn't hear from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, like I hadn't talked to Ken in a while and, you know, it's probably about 10 years ago now I was walking down the street one day and I guess he saw me and pulled around and tracked me down at this, like, gas station. He yelled out of his car, hey, Kelly, and I went over there and, you know, told him what I was up to and stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, we, you know, released some stuff, and, you know, I've been holding on to this money for you. And, you know, after that, and I was definitely in a better place. We started talking more, um, and I started talking more to Greg and at least putting, putting uh, you know, because we've done so much together. You know, mm-hmm. I I still don't understand why we didn't, at the very least, remain, like, friends, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it's just kind of the way we all were then. I can't see any of us acting like that today. Uh, this is a question I, I, I you rarely get a straight answer from, but I, I figured I'll ask it. When you're broken up and you're all in your different directions making your own music, mm-hmm. you know, how much attention are you paying to each other? Like, did you go out and get the on stuff when it came out to, to give it a listen and you know were you impressed by it or disappointed I mean what what kind of tabs do you keep on your former bandmates and is there any competition or anything weird about it no I mean definitely nothing weird I, I you know I don't I can't speak for Ken and Greg but me personally like I was always well aware you know Greg did auto lock so I always knew you know where he was at mm. and like I said I would go see shows and stuff like that Ken, I actually played a little bit on the 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 on record, okay. um, and I knew all the guys that were in Year of the Rabbit, um, especially Tim Dow, the drummer, and I were really good friends. Um, so I was always definitely quite aware. And then you know when he did that uh, his solo record, like maybe five or six years ago, I actually the first time he and I had performed together since we had broken up, I showed up at a Troubadour show, and he had me come up and we played uh, the Nurse Who Loved Me. Okay. Were you surprised by the direction he took with, with on? It almost seemed like having done no, that no. Depeche Mode cover, that that was like the, I don't know, like leading into him doing more electronic well, bass music. <laughs> See, that's exactly like that's the the he's always liked electronic music, but the the Depeche Mode thing, just kind of a, a quick skate to the to the right. We were, this was toward the end of the band. We were actually out rehearsing and trying to record that song. We had three days to do it, and we'd been working on it for two days. 
and we'd kind of come up with like, okay, it's going to go like this, yada, yada, yada. And Greg had not shown up to any of these. Mm. Like he just was not showing up. He wasn't answering his phone. Like we had no idea what was going on with him. And then on the third day, he showed up, heard what we were doing, and was like, yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> like, it's not going to go oh, like that. Geez. And in his weird, like, disappeared, and no one had heard from him, he'd been doing whatever he was doing, but he also was working out from start to finish how the Depeche Mode song was going to go. And okay. he literally was like, this is how I think it should go. And in that weird, like, you know, everyone leaves the studio and Freddie Mercury hangs out and they show up the next morning and listen to Bohemian and Rhapsody for the first time. It was like yeah. one of those moments. Mm -hmm. like it was just really, we were speechless. In awe and completely speechless. Words like violence break the silence Come crashing in into my little world Painful to me, pierce right through me I've always felt like I think both of those guys are so, so talented, you know, and I think it definitely shows in all of the stuff that they do um, on their own. But I always felt like a little heartbroken that they couldn't like put aside what they needed to put aside and get back together and like work on music. I, I never felt that either one of them alone was as good as they were together. Right. You know, I liked both of their stuff. It just, it just the two of them together, again, like I was saying earlier, like the two of them is better than any one of them. Mm -hmm. So what was the catalyst for them reconciling their issues? Do you know? Their children, their kids. They, they each, uh, uh, had children that are roughly the same age, like five, six years old, and their uh, their kids started hanging out together and doing like play dates and birthdays, and <laughs> so they like slowly wow. became friends. They became friends again. They never talked about music. They didn't talk about doing music. Like you know, they just kind of avoided the subject and hung out and got to know each other again. And you know, I'm definitely sure somewhere in there, like you know, apologized for this or that. Um, but one day last year, Greg literally was like, Hey, I've got some free time. You want to get together and work on some music? And that's kind of huh. how it happened. They worked on music for like two months and Ken called me and told me what was going on. And they were, uh, uh, coming up on having like five songs, like finished and kind of demoed. And would I be interested in doing drums in a couple weeks? So I booked a studio. We went and did five songs in a day and we were originally just going to release an EP and then go back to what we were doing um, but then other people had big ideas we 
booked that show, and it like sold out in six minutes, and it just kind of took on a life of its own. I'm hoping at some point that the kids are on a little league baseball team together, and you and the failure gets to be the sponsor of the baseball team. <laughs> I know, right? That boy, would be the married. best. It's a boy and a girl. It's oh, a it's a boy and a girl. girl. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah, that that would be the other uh, option. Or I've always I've always thought that maybe they should be the album cover. Oh yeah. Speaking of album cover, uh, would you like to maybe help us break some news here and tell us what the album title would be and the release date? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I based on how literally you guys have re- no idea. Based on how we, you're recording we, it, that's no surprise. We have kind of been talking about, oh, you know, if we want to have this finished by like the end of February and have it out in May, we should probably like start thinking about artwork and titles and things like that. Uh, but we're, I mean, we're literally still like writing and recording mode. We've got like two songs going on right now that should be done probably, oh, I'd say by like Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and we still have, I think, like four or five more songs we want to do and probably like five segues that we want to do. In the five next segues? And a half. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is going to be a long record, too, for sure. Um, so, we want it to be like, you know, an hour, maybe a little bit more. So Return to Flat Fantastic Planet or Fantas- Fantastic Planet Part 2, going with the cinematic um, sort of approach yeah, no, of sequels? It's, 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 uh, it definitely has its own vibe. Um, it certainly is failure doing it, but there's a lot of new stuff going on. It, the record is perfectly the same way that Fantastic Planet was to Magnify. Okay. Like, it's definitely breaking a lot of new ground. I, I saw in the Pledge Music campaign and in um, the photos that were posted that there was a, a row of guitar pedals um, made by mm-hmm. Earthquake, Earthquaker devices, which is... Oh, yeah, they're it, awesome. It, it, and it's in Akron, Ohio, which is just north of us here in Columbus. Yeah. That was sort of a shocker for me. I mean, that's not like a, that's not Boss. That's not, you know, a huge guitar pedal company. That's a a boutique company out of Ohio. How did that, do you know how that came about that they ended up using Earthquaker on the album? Yeah, well, you know, we're using Axe Effects now. Okay. Like, there's no amps or anything on stage. It's all like rack mount Axe Effects, fractals. Oh, okay. So that way, first of all, we don't have to carry all that gear to accommodate you know, two guys that both play bass and guitar. There's yeah. no more switching. Like, each one of them has got all their own sounds and all their own patches on their side of the stage. And mm-hmm. it's so much cleaner. But what had happened is we were playing in Austin, actually. Uh, we did that Fun, Fun, Fun Festival. Mm-hmm. And after we played, um, our tour manager was like, hey, there's these guys here. They're from Earthquaker Pedals, and they want to, like, meet you guys, and, you know, I think the guy's got a pedal or something for you. So the guy just showed up and gave us a pedal. <laughs> um, there you go. And when we, when we got back and, like, started fooling around, they plugged in the pedal, and we're like, oh, my God, this is awesome. And our yeah. tech, Gabe, was like, oh, yeah, dude, they're the best. I've got this uh, rainbow machine. So we got that, and as soon as Greg was playing guitar, he hooked that up and just started doing all this crazy stuff and immediately fell in love. Yeah. Um, so we got a hold of them and they sent us like five or six pedals. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so we have that in combination with the, the fractal axe effects. Cool. So f- for you, that I, I would imagine the whole stage mix scenario is also way more controlled, right? Because there's it's no more amps on stage. Yeah. It's all we basically take. We built a, a studio environment. Mm-hmm. Put everything on in ears. Everything we bought a mixing board. We've each got our own iPad, so we can do our own mixes if we need to. But they're pretty much set up, like we set them up, um, so they stay the same all the time. And then we take that unit and we put it on the stage, so it sounds perfect every single time. And so then we send we send the sounds out to a sound guy. Well, our our whole thing was like we want to be in complete control of this. Yeah. Like the worst thing is like getting on a stage and not being able to communicate with a monitor guy. Yeah. And as a result, not having the best show. So we wanted to get rid of that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ken, you know, being an engineer and a mixer, he went a little bit further, and we basically pre-mixed our entire sound. Mm-hmm. And we just send that to a board. And we have a sound guy that we actually have a very talented sound guy that managed to make us sound even better than, you know, that. Right. You know, it sounds like the records, basically. Yeah. What about your we drums? Are those... Are those triggered or are uh, those real? No, I no, I would never do that. Okay, I'm I'm not a, I, you know I I I I don't despise triggers. Like I, I I definitely recognize that there are some things that they're really good for. Like if you want to create sounds and things like that. But as mm-hmm. far as like replacing an acoustic drum kit, mm-hmm. I'm like firmly rooted in the 1970s. <laughs> good. Like it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense yeah. to me to do that okay. or at least not at this point. Although I have added some electronics uh, because when we play everything live, there's we're not using tracks or anything like that, and uh, we've you know ditched having a fourth member, so we're reproducing all the sounds in real time live. So you know Ken's got like foot pedals and Greg's got foot pedals and Greg's playing bass guitar and keyboards and piano and you know I've got a whole arsenal of sounds coming out of my Roland SPDSX pad and um, it's it's quite rush like actually <laughs> in a in a in a, a, a weirder sci-fi way uh, less less musicy more like sci-fi yeah I, I've I've heard that. Um... Rush might do a similar thing because I've heard that they they have a setup where they basically can do an entire sound check before they without the band being there. <laughs> like they have, yeah, yeah, basically everything's yeah. recorded and, and they just set it up and play it through the PA and they can do all of the mixing and have it all ready to go so the band doesn't have to sound yep. check anymore. <laughs> yeah, and they use tracks now too. Everything oh, okay. is on a click track. Their uh, lights and everything like they're they're in that league where mm-hmm. you know everything's tied to a computer and it runs the whole show yeah um, i can't ever see us being at that stage right it's just too weird <laughs> you know the, the yeah, day yeah. the day that i'm not like able to like try really hard and still make a mistake is i think the day that like i should probably do something else yeah like I, I love being a human. Like I love really, really working hard. Well, you and you want to maintain the performance aspect of what you're doing. It's not just a yeah, yeah. a miming a miming routine. And, and the way we play together doesn't it, it wouldn't work with with tracks and stuff like that. 
Sure. Can you talk just a little bit about uh, the Linda Perry experience? Um, how did you wind up working with her? What was that like? Um, I watched her reality show last. Oh uh, yeah, I haven't ago. seen that yet. How, how well, was it? I enjoyed it. I like anything about bands, you know. So yeah, I, yeah. I think the most fascinating part was I had no idea she was, or at least in the show, she's portrayed as being um, very, very compassionate, but also very confrontational. So I guess that would be yeah. one of my questions is, is that the reality? You know, she was, you know, very demanding and confrontational from our, you know, the, the people she worked with, but um, also very understanding of them. You know, I, you know, from my, having not seen the show, um, yeah. I, I could definitely see her being that way in that context. And I, I, I don't think she was like acting like that's genuinely, genuinely her. I've, mm-hmm. I've definitely um, seen her exhibit all of those sides of, you know, her personality that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, super, super sweet. Um, mm-hmm. She can definitely be really compassionate, mm-hmm. but she can also be extremely demanding. Yeah. You know, and my, my role as a member of her recording band was you show up, you listen to the song, she gives you kind of like this rough blueprint idea like you know once she was like uh you know i want it to kind of sound like that uh what's that song in oceans 11 that elvis just want to get some satisfaction you know <laughs> we were doing a, a christina song okay um and i wound up playing like a combination of that and james brown mm-hmm. uh you know sort of like really cool funky lots of ghost note stuff james brown beat mm-hmm. and you know i literally tracked that once and was done Mm-hmm. That was, uh, you know, it literally took me 15 minutes and I got to go home. If you lift me up, just get me through this night. I know I'll rise tomorrow. And I'll be strong in And then there were other times where we would work on a track for 12 hours. I would go through every drum in her collection, and it, it was it was it was actually very very educational. She was I really really enjoyed working for her. Um, you know, in a work environment, to me, like she was very very respectful yet very demanding, and she brought things out of me that I didn't show up there having. Yeah. Uh, one, she taught me how to play softly. She likes to compress the drum sounds, like softly, like your sticks are falling out of your hands because you're holding them so lightly, okay. which I found really, really uncomfortable to do, mm-hmm. but but learned how to eventually do through faking it for her. Mm-hmm. You know, one day I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to do that thing that I do. You know, it was... Mm-hmm. You know, as much a part of me as, you know, raising my hands over my head and breaking stuff. Mm-hmm. 
so it was I I don't have a, I can't say enough great things about about working for her. What's uh do you know what what stuff you worked on off the top of your head? What albums? Yeah, we we did some uh, Alicia Keys stuff and some Christina Aguilar stuff, some Leona Lewis, uh, some Faith Hill. Um, you know, sometimes these things would just be like you know demos. Yeah. Um, sometimes they would be for the record, like we did the whole record twice. Um, we did some Scissor Sisters stuff. Um, what else did we do? Some KT Tunstall stuff, which was really fun. Oh God, there's just there's so much yeah. of it. A lot yeah. of like American Idol kids, Adam Lambert. You know, it could be anybody. Like you never knew. It was like five days a week. So wow. is that like is that like punching a clock where you literally show up, hit the time card, and you're in and you're recording, or is that you, is that a, like Not quite. okay? Not quite. Like, there, there there, was definitely a time that you show up, like, usually around 11, 12 o'clock. You roll in, and things just kind of ease into it. And, like, there's no... It certainly isn't like having some kind of, like, union gig. Um, there are no clocks. There are no business people. You know, it's just her in the band, you know, and you're just, like, working on creating music. It's actually pretty free-flowing. And outside of, like, you know, wanting to get the best part really quickly, like, there wasn't a whole lot of, like, stress or sort of straight-lacedness to it. You know, you were allowed to be imaginative and, you know, make a few mistakes trying to do something new and exciting, you know. It was actually kind of like, especially for that kind of gig, it was pretty perfect. And then, you know, it wasn't really stiff, and it wasn't like, you know, going to a job. Definitely not. Right. Um, so, you know, and, with, the, and the paychecks were a lot better than any job I've ever gone to. Mm-hmm. Was this at the same time you were playing with Veruca Salt, or was this before no, was or after. after? It was, it was after. after. Okay. It, it was after. It was, uh, I'd say, like from, I don't know, it was up until about two years ago, actually. Okay. Um, two years ago is when I started playing in, like, uh, touring bands again. Um, so it was about, it was about, uh, I'd say 2008, 2007, 2008 to 2012. And it, so that's after Vrukasalt had gone on hiatus or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. how, um, how did Louise, you end up? Louise went off and, you know, was having a family and stuff like that. Gotcha. Now, was she based in an LA or in Chicago when you guys were yeah. playing together? Yeah, no, everybody was living here in LA. Um, but okay. I, I had done one of her previous records right after her and Nina broke up in the 90s, in like 98 or so. Uh, and she was living in Chicago. I actually flew out to Chicago and played with her. And at the same time, her and I did a track for that Depeche Mode record. Okay. I was trying to figure out the, the lineage there in terms of... I guess the Vrugasalt drummer had left at that point, right? To uh... um, Yeah. Yeah, I think it was okay. just kind of Louise on her own... Um, carrying on the band name. When I went back and listened to the album, I think it was 2005 or six when that came out. Um, uh-huh. I, I turned on the first track and I was like, oh yes, this is definitely Kelly Scott playing drums.
I could hear your no. sound, and it made it sound. I, I don't know if her. I, I thought of Fricasalt as being not quite as heavy as what that record sounded. It felt like her guitar playing, and the and the band got a bit heavier on that record. And I think yeah. that that was probably matching what you were doing um, in terms for, of the drums. For sure, I was for sure. I mean, I was definitely putting an energy to, into it that previous uh, Veruca Salt records didn't didn't have. And we'd written all that stuff together for that record. Okay. Um, so we were like a band writing in a rehearsal room, and then we went and did that record. Okay. Um, that, was a, that was a fun record, actually. Yeah, in terms of the post, you know, uh, American Thighs slash Eight Arms to Hold You, I think I felt like going back and listening to the catalog again, that that was the record that had the most interesting things going on in terms of mm-hmm. vocals and melodies and guitars and drums and everything. Whereas some of the other stuff, I, it, it felt not quite as fulfilled as that record did. So, yeah, I think, it, you know, I think those earlier records, they were just such a young band, mm-hmm. you know, and it was still like kind of fun and not all that serious. And, you know, um, the drummer actually was Nina's brother and he wasn't really a drummer. Like, he just started playing drums to be in the band with his sister. Mm. <laughs> um, so that alone, you know, the way he was playing drums and the way I play drums. I remember Louise actually asking me a couple times, like, when we were doing older stuff. She's like, this just doesn't feel the same. And I was like, well, you know, because I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm a serious drummer. Like, I'm really committed to what I do. Like, you can't expect me to play like I just learned how to play. <laughs> Like that's, that's not going to happen, you know? And I don't think she'd ever, it was funny because when I said that, she was like, oh, okay, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Forget everything I just said. Like, let's, <laughs> let's, do, this. let's do this now. So this is going to sound and feel different. I was like, yeah, just trust me. It's going to kick ass. It's going to be really just heavy and, you know, serious. So what drew you to that project? I had just gotten sober. Um, actually, and I had gone through this thing where I had learned how to live my life successfully without ever having to play music again. Um, I had kind of turned the page on it and was finding all these other cool, interesting, fun things to do. And I ran into Steven, the guitar player, and I were also really good friends. Um, He's from Chicago as well. And he just kind of blurted out, like, you know, man, I'm, we're doing this new record. We're all living here in town, and, like, Louise is sober. And, you know, he kind of said that, and I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe this would be cool. Maybe it'd be a cool, safe environment, and, you know, maybe it's different. Maybe I should check it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for whatever reason, like, I didn't even realize I was saying yes until after I, like, kind of heard it out loud. Right. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. You know, I didn't even mm-hmm. have a drum set. You know, um, and like a week later, you know, I kind of fulfilled my promise and met them down at a rehearsal studio and we just started working and it was, you know, it was really cool. Um, it felt, you know, as natural and easy and normal, you know, I, especially like, you know, when you get sober and you're like, okay, well, you know, why was I the way I was? You're not really sure to try and ease back into your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I know there are a lot of people that, you know, get sober that have a hard time, like, being in clubs and playing in bands and, you know, revisiting that stuff 
uh, makes them very uneasy, and you know sometimes they just start getting smashed again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that it was just a perfect opportunity. It was right for where I was. Cool. So we probably should uh, start heading down the final stretch here. Yeah. I wanted to, cool. I, I wanted you to talk through the the pledge music experience. Uh, where the idea come from? Um, what are your guys's? Um, you know, why'd you do it, and what are your expectations for it? You know, I, I think we definitely did it as just kind of a reaction to, you know, all of our previous experience is, you know, going with record labels. And, you know, I kind of hinted to earlier, like taking your future and putting it in someone else's hands. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't want to make the same mistakes twice. You know, we wanted to be able to enjoy all the aspects of like getting back together and making music together and you know, just sort of have as much control over what we're doing as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, so in in light of that, it seemed like a very no-brainer idea. And, you know, I think we also like the aspect of, uh, you know, especially after doing the tour, you know, I think it was the first time that it really dawned on us, like, how how important, like, the fan base is. You know, that it, it, a lot of, like, what we're loving about being a band again um, is a direct result of them and, like, sort of their passion for what we're doing after all these years. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that seemed like a really good way to sort of stay connected with that. You know, because the punch music, the whole thing runs on your ability to, like, you know, interface with your fans, more mm-hmm. or less. Um, you know, and they get access to sort of what you're doing and how you do it. And it's kind of like adding the live show element to recording the record um, in a bizarre way. Like hmm. you, you have spectators. Right. So do you guys have a philosophy um, on how you're going to go about that part of it? I mean, you put the one video out, which seems to have a very, I don't know, it had a different kind of approach to it. Do you have a vision for that that performance of recording on the Internet? Um, <laughs> No, not necessarily. I think, okay. you know, I think we it, we just kind of take it as it comes. Okay. You know, like that pledge video, um, we just kind of had like a rough idea of what we wanted to do. And, you know, we have a bunch of cameras and stuff because Ken's, you know, also a filmmaker. We have all these cameras set up in the studio. Mm-hmm. So we just decided we wanted to do something different. You know, we didn't want it to be about... Oh my God, we need your money, poor us. Right. Like, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Like, we've mm-hmm. actually already paid for the record ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we put away some money from, you know, money we made from touring last year, specifically to be able to record our own record and do whatever we want with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that act, that side of it is gone. So it's not a direct plea to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it really is, you know... With technology, I mean, this is the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how how can we be a part of this um, in a way that makes us feel comfortable and not ashamed? Or, um, you know, it's just kind of adding a, another side to sort of what you already do, you know? Right. Um, and yeah. it's super fun. And it's, you know, interesting. Like, a lot went into, a lot of thought creation went into the way you know, we, we actually did the the little video. We did another one the other day. Did you see that one? No, I've only seen one. The first Oh, you should check that one out. It's hilarious. Cool. It's about two minutes long. It's the funniest thing in the world. Or I think it's <laughs> funny. I don't know if anybody else will. But. Was it from uh, January 17th? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I need to check that oh, one. Oh, do you have it right in front of you? Yeah. You know, it, it's fun. I mean, it, it's kind of like the whole recording thing. I mean, well, we do that a little bit better now. We kind of know what we're doing. Um, but this is just, you know, a little more excitement that sort of trudging through the unknown and learning new stuff. And, you know, we're we're having fun with it. We're definitely embracing it, you know, as much as we can. We certainly aren't going to do anything that doesn't make us comfortable. Right. And I thought the first video, you get to hear some music-like things, but you it, it's a cool teaser in terms of it's more... You just hear little glimpses and clips and pieces and parts, which is cool. Like it doesn't. Yeah. Thinking about you know the whole mystique conversation, it seemed it it holds the mystique because you're not quite you're not seeing it come together, but you're seeing individual yeah. pieces and parts and clues of how it's done, which was very cool. And, and I could thing, tell you would that, put some thought thing, into that. That thing sounds like a. Uh, um, it's so weird. It sounds like we're doing some crazy experimental Pink Floyd. Post-Pink Floyd record. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And, I mean, the the record isn't quite like that. Like, it actually does make sense. But that video, like, it's just the whole thing, you know? I think we're kind of... There's always this, like, point in just about anything we do where there are these things that just coincidentally or, you know, divine intervention that happen that I don't think any of us can actually take credit for. You know, they're like just these beautiful, weird mistakes that happen, you know, like UFOs, like you can't really explain them. Mm. Um, there's a lot of them going on in that, that first video, for sure. Was there ever any, ever any thought of, of not actually doing an album, but of a different type of release, maybe an EP or, or singles, just yeah. because we're not sort of beholden to that model anymore as as because of the internet? Well, in in the beginning, that's all we were going to do. Like, we had those five songs that we, you know, recorded last year, and we were going to release an EP. And then, you know, just go back to whatever it was we were doing before that. Um, but then, you know, we started to talk to friends and play music, and the whole thing just kind of took on a life of its own, and we wanted to do one show, and then that one show was like, oh, well, you should do a small tour, and, you know, I'm not going to be your manager unless you do a whole record. You know, it just it kind of snowballed and took on a life of its own, like literally. Mm. Um, We're just kind of going with it, you know. Well, I'll selfishly say I'm glad you are. Uh, Not only do I want to hear the music, but... Uh, you know, I, I think we're at a time musically, Tim kind of brought this up, where the whole idea of an album is now, you know, a question mark. What does that mean? And do we need to do them? And I think I, I think a failure is an album band. So I'm glad that yeah. you guys are doing a full-fledged album. And, you know, I think that is the art form that, you know, that you create is, is an album. And the live show is a different thing, too. But I'm glad that uh, that's the direction. Yeah, yes. no, so am I. And thank you for saying I wasn't actually too... The the EP thing seemed very unfinished. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, part of my person, like, I always want more. It's like, well, <laughs> why do an EP when we can do a whole record? Like, you know, um, I mean, I'll take as much as I can get, for sure. Don't get us wrong. We, we, we take an EP, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, you guys, one, one thing I really loved about that podcast was, like, you, like, all three of you were, like, so kind, you know, about your, uh, your take on the record. 
Like I think Jay really was a little less unkind. Like, <laughs> Jay was a little I harsh. No, he was actually really honest. Like, I've definitely thought about, like, his one thing that he said was, the record's really long. And I think it's really long. I actually think it's three records. You know, I listen to it in three parts. Hmm. You know, and it is a long record, but it's also, you know, we we made the record thinking that it would never come out. You know, so we just wrote all of these songs and more or less put them all on there. You know, and I think if we could change one thing, that song Leo that you picked out, Mm-hmm. wouldn't have made it on the record. That's the outlier. Like, it, mm. it is, doesn't really fit with everything else. Look at you, Jay, calling out the... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, the uh, failure, I mean, no, we've made no secret of it. You know, we're musicians. We had a band together, and failure was a big point of reference, like many bands, um, you know, that were forming in probably the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, a lot of rock bands were, you know, inspired by by you and we were you know obviously thinking about you when we were writing music so you know obviously the affinity there is you know from a musicianship level and um i think you're one of those bands obviously that when you went out and reformed you started to probably see a lot of those those people that uh you know formed bands or wrote music because they were inspired by uh specifically that record right yeah 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 for sure that's, I mean, that's the crazy part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's like the the reward of all rewards, you know? Mm-hmm. You think you get into it, like, for, you know, to achieve these personal goals, and then in hindsight, like, what you actually achieved is much greater than what you were looking for. Uh, that's a great segue you know, to my that, life. That alone, like, that's, that's a really humbling feeling. Like, that's one of the things I love about the Internet. Like, to imagine that there's somebody, like, somewhere in the world right now thinking about what I'm doing for any reason is an extremely humbling feeling. Absolutely. It is. Yeah, we're, we're yeah, always it's, amazed. It's crazy. Anybody cares about this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, it's one of those things, like, we just do it, you know? We we just show up every week and we do it. And, you know, some yeah. weeks we go with not a lot of feedback and other weeks, you know, Somebody will write us a long letter and thank us, and you're like, "Wow, okay, this is this is worth doing." But my my last question, I guess, for you would be, what is success at this point? Because it seems like, you know, that's one of the things that that in some way or another ends ends bands because yeah. everybody's not on the same page about what success is and what yeah. why you're doing what you're doing. What is success for you right now? What is success for failure? Um, I think we've already achieved it. I I think the success of this band today is, you know, us just after all of those years of being apart to be able to actually have a relationship way better than we ever had, like personally and musically, to like after all these years, get in a room and make another record. You know, whatever happens with the record, I mean, that's, you know, that's not up to us. Um, The things that we can choose... You know, I, for me personally, like that in itself is enough. You know, if that's all I get out of this whole thing, I'm perfectly happy. Excellent. Well, that's a great place to wrap up, although I'm not going to wrap up there because I just have to pass along <laughs> one of many comments from people who were anticipating this episode. The most, the thing that people asked most was, when is Fantastic Planet going to be re-released on vinyl? Because right now, if you try to buy it, it's about 250 bucks. Mm-hmm. And for most human beings, that's a lot to spend on vinyl as much as 
people love the record like me. Um, is there, is there any talk of when you guys go out on tour again that there might be a repressing of it? There, there will be. Um, the problem with where all of the records are right now is they're not under our control. You know, we're still unrecouped in the eyes of Warner, so they still own all the masters for that stuff. Um, we have come to a deal with them where they will allow us to use their facilities to manufacture the vinyl and manufacture the, the inserts separately, but then we have to take the inserts and glue them together and put the vinyl inside of them and sell them ourselves. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Oh. We, we, have, we have to buy them from them, but the good thing is, like, if we're buying them and we're selling them out on tour and stuff, those count as records sold, which means we get closer to actually recouping for our deal 17, 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> so eventually, maybe, you know, if this does keep moving forward, we could have, like, control of those records and wow. make sure that they're always in record stores. Yeah. But it's, at this point, like, it's kind of going to be up to us. It sounds like the gluing project might be a good... Uh, something for the kids to work on, they, like an arts and crafts <laughs> project. You could just set up an assembly line, and they could, <laughs> they could assemble the records for you. What is that? The, the new street team. The street yeah, there you go. Team. Yeah, that would be hilarious. <laughs> All right, but we're, we're, I know. I know a lot of people do ask that, and we're we're definitely going to figure it out and put some resources together, and at the very least. You know, have them on hand when we come back out and start doing shows and stuff. Because they're, I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, nobody should have to pay two, like, I've seen them way more expensive than that. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's, it's, you know, one, it's like, shit, man. Like, I don't have that. And I can sell it for 200 bucks. But yeah. more importantly, it's like, I mean, it's disgusting that anyone should have to pay $200 for an album. You know, it should be like, you know, the price of an album. Yeah. Right. All I know is next time around, I'm buying career. 20 of them. Yeah. The story of our career, even to this day with Warner Brothers, is you can't find our records in stores. Yeah. You know, at least they're consistent in that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I hate to laugh at that, but yeah. It's... That's sad. That is sad. You're I know, All right, right? Kelly. We, we've taken up so much of your time on this Sunday evening, Dude. your day off. What a pleasure. What a well, total we, pleasure. And I, I love the weird serendipitous way that this all, you know, like you said earlier, full circles. Everything runs on full circles. Excellent. Yeah. Without uh, um, Dimitri Dumitri, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. So we have, to, we have to thank him again. He was the guy who yeah. uh, passed it along. So Yeah, um, I will. I'll actually send him a message later. And, you know, thank you again for the kind words and, you know, the, the support just doing that podcast and kind of putting it back out there in the ethos. You know, Absolutely. It's invaluable. Well, thank you for you're giving up your time. And we're, you know, waiting with bated breath on the on the new record. We can't wait to hear it. So um, oh, it's going to be so cool. It's going to be such a good record. You're going to flip. You're totally going to flip. That. I'm flipping out. <laughs> like well, that's I am, awesome. I'm a bonafide failure fan. Like I'm in the band, but I really like I relish listening to the music. Like it really, you know, it brings out the music lover in me. Like all that stuff I loved when I was a kid. Awesome, awesome. And that's all I can say. 
people can go to the pledgemusic.com yes. backslash projects yeah. backslash failure. Uh, is there anywhere else that they should check the band out? Well, there's, uh, uh, I guess, the Facebook? Failure Facebook band page. Okay. I have a Facebook page. If you like, want to hit me up, I'm usually pretty good about uh, you know messaging people and you know keeping in touch and stuff. Does uh, that... It's much better. Like back in the day, I had to write people letters. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Dear That's Timmy, cool, thank though. you for the record letter about my record. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, it's like you know, every month you get a box of letters, and you'd like have to sit down and like write letters back to people. And we shouldn't waste any time looking for Ken on Instagram or Vine or. You know that could change. He <laughs> keeps threatening to. He he has an Instagram, he has a Twitter, okay. he has a Facebook, and he keeps threatening to actually use them. But uh, yeah, you know, I I I don't know. Maybe maybe after the record, you know, I think like with his family and recording the record stuff, he might be a little busy to multitask something like yeah. that. I could see him doing uh, like Greg doesn't even have one. I could see him doing like a Greg Dooley style account where it's just like Dooley. Pre- pretty mysterious pictures of like you don't know what, but just yeah, that's Dooley, dude. That's Dooley in real life. <laughs> I, yeah. I played with Dooley in uh, uh, Lanigan's band for a little while, and he's like, that's totally his personality. Wow, you that's you just—that's the uh, uh, alternative rock all-star team right there. <laughs> I mean, well, dude, we actually like back in the day. I remember there was one failure tour, and Afghan Wigs were touring like right next. We were in the same city every day for like. Actually, it happened more often. It was about a three-month tour, and we kept winding up in the same intersecting cities um, and going to their shows, and they'd come to our shows, and, uh, like, way back in the day. That was in, like, 94. Wow. Uh, I, I love Greg. Greg's a, he's a good lad. I think we need to get you on the next Gutter Twins album. That's what needs to Dude, happen. That would be totally cool. I, I need. Totally I need be into that. I need you on there, and I need Clay Tarver from Chavez playing guitar on that for the whole thing, along with Greg and and Mark, and I think wow. that's pretty much... You guys get Dooley from that end, and I'll hit him up from this end. I'll start going to his bar every night and like leaving <laughs> notes with the bartender if he's not there <laughs> to like call me. I, I actually almost ran into him a month ago, and I had something come up and like couldn't show up. Uh, a friend of ours like knows him really well, too, and they were doing something i can't remember what it was but i wound up not being able to go uh which kind of stunk because I, I actually haven't seen them in quite a while uh, but that would be rad i love gutter twins gutter twins is awesome we're gonna make that happen i'm gonna act as this the swangali uh producer on that one and uh make that happen cool. so let's uh let's we'll stay in contact on that all right uh, a, united, a united front is a strong front <laughs> All right, Kelly, thanks so much. We're going to wrap this up. You're very welcome. Thank you. Everybody go to all the aforementioned websites, uh, Failure Band, uh, Facebook, and Pledge Music to um, get in on the action before this record comes out sometime this spring, possibly May. We don't have an official date. May is the date we're looking at, sometime in May. Sometime in May. Um, and uh, everybody go watch the Conor McGregor fight on Fox Sports 1 tonight. <laughs> well, this will I be coming seeing... out a week from Tuesday, so that it'll be in the past. 
unfortunately. Oh, well, that's perfect. That's perfect. Everybody will, like, listen to it and go, holy shit, and they'll try and put it on Fox Sports 1 and have to sit through a bunch of, like, basketball and boring I, stuff I, like that. I only know about that because they kept running the commercials during uh, football today. Oh, that's it's right, the, yeah. It's, it's the Irish guy, right? Yeah. yeah. Conor McGregor. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a force to be reckoned with for sure. Sounds like a guy from a Guy Ritchie movie. Or the plot yeah, of a Guy Ritchie he, film, he, possibly. He actually is. Like, he's full of personality. That's why he's getting all this hype. Like, he's a bonafide star, for sure. All right, then. Well, that's a weird note to end the podcast on, so we'll see fighting, but hey, where we go? All the right. fighting Irish. The fighting Irish. All right, thanks again, Kelly. And You're very uh, welcome. Have a great night, guys. Thank you. You, you too. too. And Jay, that's it. Wrapping up episode 211 in the books. Always want to remind people, head on over to iTunes, leave us some positive feedback, or digmeoutpodcast.com to request a review. That's it. We're done. Back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 